Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We have an important guest here. I want to get through this quickly so John can get to uh, Mr. Short-Term Interest Rates. The president has put out an exceptionally cogent five-tweet statement, and it literally borders on a statement, on Turkey, on ISIS, as he puts it, the caliphate. I'm not going to go into all five tweets other than to say, John, this took some planning. This is not a random tweet by the president. It is a statement of his belief on the history of this moment, where we are now, and he touches a little bit on the future. Late in the five tweets, uh, he says, we are 7,000 miles away and will crush ISIS again if they come anywhere near us, exclamation point. We'll leave it at that. This morning's commentary from the president on the geopolitical situation, waiting to see his thoughts on trade as well. Really pleased to say that we do have Mr. Short-Term Interest Rates. Tony, have you ever been called that before, Mr. Short-Term Rates? Tony Crescenzi. Well, I'm sitting next to Tom Keane, and he's rather tall, so I guess today we could... I you could just, you're just going to take Mr. it. Short. Tony Crescenzi of PIMCO with us. Mr. Short-Term Rates, is that, with, is that how we introduce yeah, our but, guests? But this is short-term rates two-year. Are we going to start with repo, like short-short? What do you want to do, We're going to start with their cyclical oh, outlook, short. and I want to start with 2020 yeah. in the United States. And 1% GDP, Tony, wait, wait, that's wait, the wait, PIMCO call. Zero? One to one and a half percent for the United States, two to two and a half percent for the world, and that's a lot lower than it normally is. That puts nominal GDP for the world when you add about two points or so for inflation in the fours. What the world typically sees is somewhere in the mid fives, near six, and that typically coincides with double digit earnings growth, which is why you would project. Of something good for equities. But now one could say that economies are moving closer to stall speed, certainly the term that everyone in aviation knows. And that means there's risk of tumbling into recession, of what stalling define completely. Define stall speed in our well, world. Well, so um, like the, the U.S. has, we know the world is indebted. And uh, this requires leaps of faith every day by investors to go out each day to buy equities, to engage in capital spending to spend money generally, to lend, et cetera, et cetera. If confidence drops, and it does, it can near 1%, rather than if, if it's roaring, uh, then it could move toward recession, simply feed on itself because of human nature. It feeds on itself from psychological factors, uh, and so that's the force here. And there are other factors, of course. One could go back 50 years and say inventories are too high and demand is slowed, so let's cut output, and that's what causes recession, cuts in output and employment. That's the main definition from the NBER, the group that s- assigns dates for recessions. That's a good enough answer. So let's talk about what the committee and you guys did over the last couple of months. You all get together, and you basically try and answer the one question, window to recovery or recession? Which one is it? Well, what we write up in the piece is that there are fat tails, so to speak. Uh, And one could say that the baseline is the tails, that one of these things is going to happen, meaning there'll either be a recession because the economy slows enough to push it into recession, or it picks up due to, let's say, an agreement with China or some other factor that turns things positive. And so the likelihood is it goes in either direction. So positioning-wise, we want to be cautious in terms of um, leaving some risk uh, in the budget, meaning we could react to uh, a movement when we think the momentum is going in one way or the other, where we have the ability to do that. So we want liquidity, resilience, and agility in portfolios, and there are many ways to define that. 
Does that mean own stocks? Does that mean go to cash? Equity beta, as they say, the connect, the amount as of connection say. we have. Listen to you, Bob guy. In the at seven fifty-two, in the east, beta. <laughs> we the <clears throat> amount of so well, there's always equity. There, there's equity risk in bonds, just like there's uh, interest really? rate risk in equities. I love busting his chops. And so you think about the high yield bond, which we were talking about with John and I earlier, yeah. because they didn't perform very well. That's actually in the cash market, in in the market that uh, we're investors go to buy insurance against weakness in the high yield market actually perform well which suggests it was just some sellers just technical stuff but uh, in owning equities now it's the amount of beta the amount of uh, equity exposure one should have probably should be a little lighter than normal but we wouldn't say run away we wouldn't want to have what we call a negative carry portfolio for bonds this is another way of saying that let's say you have a portfolio that correlates to what's called the Barclays aggregate it's the S&P 500 in the bond world, we'd want the that amount would be of the yield. Bloomberg Barclays aggregate. The Bloomberg's Bloomberg Barclays aggregate. Yeah. The name's changed okay, we'll so many times. Forgive me. I want, look at it every day, but we would want the amount of expected return to be above that. Uh, there may be times if we were expecting recession tomorrow, we'd say, let's run it. Okay, below. well, come on, let's cut to the chase. So we don't, Bonds we want are making little... me nothing. I'm making two or three, four percent, and you want an expected return in equities so, above wait. that. Tom, is how much is the insurance on your car making you today? How much is the insurance on your well, home? The Bentley's expensive. <laughs> so we'd say you can't try to market time the, this diversification benefits of bonds. They still will be there to help you. This is why the world is in, okay with owning 17 trillion of negative yielding bonds. Well, Tony, think you touched on something. You've happen. touched on something really important. The demand for duration and how sensitive it will be to the yield levels. And you explore this in your cyclical outlook. So talk to me about that. How strong will that demand be, regardless of where the yield is, for duration in the United States? It will remain potent. The U.S. is the most attractive uh, bond market in the world of the big sovereign bond markets, and the U.S. is the biggest. It's still the one that would protect investors against the equities they hold, the credit risks they hold, the other assets they hold. So we wouldn't want to try to market time the diversification benefits by saying, well, rates are low, so they're going to rise. But we would be careful about duration risk, too. There is risk of yields rising at some point, so you don't want to have a lot of that. Simply look for other sources of return in many ways to do that. So we would expect the demand for duration to stay high. Partly, real quick, the, the aging of the world population, the older we get, the higher we go in the capital structure, meaning the less risk we want to have, the more likely we would be in bonds, holding bonds. Long-term treasuries have really delivered through the year. I think we're up around about 20% for the treasury market at the long end. Some people might make the argument, why take the duration risk in America when I can just buy a two-year at 140? On the back of the simple question, rates are going to be much lower than they are now, 12 months, 18 months out. Why don't I just sit at the front end? What do you make of that? I get the similar yield, and I might get the capital returns as well if the Fed starts to cut rates. The amount of protection that one would get uh, against the risks in a portfolio, so it uh, wouldn't be as great. So that would be the, one of the key arguments for that. For that, what do we do now after we've seen the yields come in? What I've noticed since we've seen you last, Tony, is a new embedded view of a lower terminal value, which is the Pimco call. I get that, but it's like the there we've been talking about for five, six, seven years. The there happened in the last sixty days. We're there in terms of a new 
terminal value. Yes, and in fact, um, one look at the um, uh, the forward curve, and I'll explain this quickly in a second and easily, hopefully, it's on Bloomberg Terminal for users, it's FWCM. One could see where the market thinks interest rates will be in the future. And in, in looking at this in? table, you see that in six months, the market thinks, and people talk a lot about the yield curve, the difference in yield between long-term maturities and yeah. short-term maturities being inverted with long-term rates lower than short-term rates. In the forward space, as we say, uh, it's not inverted, which is to say the bond market sees uh, an end to the yields decline in six months or so. That uh, the two What's year... your call on that? I mean, they've only been wrong on that for 15 right. years. Well, uh, and again, it depends on these fat tails, but uh, we would suggest that the market is fully priced for the likelihood, the likely path of Federal Reserve rate cuts. And so there probably won't be any more priced in. But very, the risk is that it's, it's asymmetric, that it could fall sharply to zero. The very, funds rate. very quickly here, how do you respond to the model of a 10-year yield with a vector down under 1%? Under zero. You well, know, it's not a forecast, well, but it's a model. Right. And Tom, part of the pricing of, of the future is an expectation that the, that 10 year and other yields could fall towards zero quickly. Uh, so part of the, when yeah. one looks out and sees a 1% funds rate in the future, the, part of that's the market saying there's 30% chance it's zero. And so yeah. it's, so it is, it is in the realm of possibility. Is Jerome Schneider aged because of the repo Jerome crisis? looks great. We were sitting with him in Newport Beach last week. And oh, he's, were you? He was <laughs> sitting in the cafe. They sound so stressed. That Irish bar. Working hard as always. Uh, and- tremendous respect <laughs> for him. We were so stressed sitting there in Newport Beach last week over a coffee. <laughs> I mean, come on, give me a <laughs> break. So sunny and- Particularly in February. <laughs> February, we're going. I'm there for a few weeks in February, getting out of New York. Yeah, good for you, Tony. Tony. Thank good to you see so you. much. Thanks, thanks for time. having me. It's great. We gotta, you know, do this more often. Well, the beautiful thing this weekend. This gets us into our next guest. You can go to him on this. Is I'm sorry, the prince in Boy George living large in the stands. He is a Villa fan. Aston Villa in the stands. Were they at Norwich or were they at Villa Park? Don't know. I I think they might have been at Norwich because I think they're locals. Yeah, but but in the stands, stands, among the people, enjoying himself with a little little Aston Villa T-shirt as well. Perfect introduction to our next guest, qualified to speak on these matters. Rupert Harrison, BlackRock Multi-Asset Strategies Portfolio Manager. I know that George Osborne's a Chelsea fan, Rupert. I don't know where that positions you. Uh, well, yeah, I am. Uh, if I'm anything, I'm a Chelsea fan as a well. A Chelsea fan as well. Oh, there geez. we go. Not just because you know, of George. That was, this, was, the, was the whole treasury Chelsea fans? Uh, no, I'd say there was a bit of diversity, yeah. Okay. Rupert, we won't talk about football. Don't worry. I have a British accent, so what happens in America is people come up to speak to me and then they ask me, how's, how's Brexit going? And I never have any idea what to tell them because I actually don't know <laughs> how Brexit is going. So, Rupert, if you came to America and someone asked you that now, what would you tell them? Um, I'd say it's going slowly, uh, which is the main the main feature. I think most British people would just want it to go away at this point. But uh, uh, look, the key, the key thing is that we are heading, I think, most likely for an election. Uh, you know, the, the current right. political system is unable to deliver an outcome. Uh, we have uh, our, the Europeans, or the European Union and the Irish, I think, have an incentive to wait things out and see what an election delivers. And that is by far the most likely next step. You mentioned this uh, earlier, Rupert, and I'm seeing it in the news. In the last, I'm going to guess, two weeks, there's been an assumption of improved polling 
is the nation supports Prime Minister Johnson. Do I have that right? Yeah, that is right. Or at least that's, you know, if the polls are to be believed, then the current strategy is working. And the strategy is really, remember, you know, for the Conservatives to win a majority in the general election, they, they all they need is, say, 38 percent of the vote, um, given the very weak polling numbers for the Labour Party and the way that the support for other parties is very broadly distributed. Right. Uh, and that, that strategy is holding up. It's basically the message is, you know, from Boris Johnson, I am the one who's going to deliver on what the people voted for in a referendum. I am being prevented from doing that by Parliament and the courts and our right. European partners. Uh, vote for me and I'll get it done. And at the moment, that message is, is pretty clear. And uh, yeah, I think it's working. Rupert, one thing that isn't working was secure this idea, the prospect of a hard Brexit as some kind of credible threat to go at the Europeans with. Rupert, it just doesn't feel credible at all at the moment, does it? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that you've got two things coming out of the government at the moment. You've got the the message to the voters, which is we're going to leave on the 31st, do or die. Um, But I think in practice, the government accepts that in the end, as long as they have shown that they have done everything possible that in you know to get out in the end they will will be forced to comply with the law uh, and i think that that is therefore reflected in the attitude from the other side of these negotiations um i think that the the irish uh, and the european union know that they can wait this out uh, that most likely the next outcome will be a, a general election there is this very small probability even of a second referendum but i think more likely a general election and so why would you not wait and see how the cards fall after that election and then engage. The summit, I believe, is around about 10 days away, isn't it, Rupert? 10 days away over in Europe. Rupert, is that that crunch time? Is that crunch time, that summit? Is that where something has to happen or can we drag this out through the end of the month? Um, I think that it's the kind of immediate crunch, yes. I think that there will there's the possibility of another summit later on, maybe on the 24th, 25th. But most likely that is the crunch moment. I think that at the moment it's looking unlikely that there will be an agreement at that point. It's not impossible, again, if the UK does make further concessions, but I think most likely no agreement. Uh, then I suspect the UK government will attempt to press on with no deal exit plans. I think they want to be taken to the courts and I think they want to be dragged kicking and screaming to an extension. A tweet from Jeremy Corbyn. Football clubs are too important to be left in the hands of bad owners like Mike Ashley who put their own business interests ahead of everything else. Let's take the beautiful game away from the billionaires and hand it to the fans instead. This right, is where the politics the This is where that. the politics and business comes together and Rupert I think this does matter just to the general conversation away from Mike Ashley and Newcastle United who Mr Ian Shepherdson, Tom, is very unhappy with. Um, we can talk about the prospect of Jeremy Corbyn. And when I talk to people in the city still, Rupert, reach out to them, email them, call them. What are you worried about? Hard Brexit or Jeremy Corbyn? Typically, they're more worried about the latter than the former. Where do you come down on that one, Rupert? Yeah, I think from a market point of view, I think there's a lot in that. Um, I think that you know the market is still concerned about no deal Brexit, um, but a lot of investors in the into the UK are very concerned about the longer term implications of a Corbyn government. Um, I think that there's sort of two levels of concern. I think that at the moment it looks very unlikely that uh, a Labour 
government would get an overall majority in the House of Commons. So therefore, you're most likely right. dealing with a it, the most likely potential outcome would be a Corbyn-led government, but it would be a minority government supported by the Scottish Nationalists and the Liberal Democrats. That would significantly constrain a lot of the domestic agenda. So you would get higher taxes, you would probably get nationalisation yeah. of the water utilities, uh, but you would not get some of the more... Um, extreme policies that would be yeah. kind of playing fire with some of our institutions. And I think, therefore, that's a little bit <clears throat> right. more manageable from a market point of view. But, Rupert, and this goes back to my conversations over the years with the author, Anthony Selden, and his great work on Mr. Blair. That's all great, but what happens the day Mr. Corbyn leaves or is forced out or exits stage right or stage left, for that matter? What happens to labor the moment this single individual leaves? I think it's very important to understand that the the, lift, the leftward shift in the Labour Party is far more than just Jeremy Corbyn okay, and the immediate team around him. So, you know, the, they have now got this huge new swathe of members and affiliated members who are um, very much on the left. A lot of them are former socialist workers, former Green Party supporters. Uh, and those are the people who would choose the next leader of the Labour Party. Uh, and you've, you know... <clears throat> While yeah. you would, might not get someone who was quite as extreme as Jeremy Corbyn, you would still, I think, get a very left-wing candidate. So um, there, I, I think anyone who is hoping for a return of you know, new yeah. labor yeah. Um, is going to be disappointed. Brilliant. Uh, Rupert Harrison, thank you so much. Next Rupert, time we thank promise you. lots of uh, investment talk there because of this huge political, overwhelming political news flow. Very lovely with us right now of Syracuse University and the Peterson Institute. We are thrilled that she could join us uh, today. What is, Mary, the microeconomics of the trade war right now? Not the politics, not the view forward, but right now in October, November of this year, what's the supply and demand dynamics of this trade war? Well, good morning, Tom. Uh, what we're seeing right now is we're beginning to absorb some of the latest uh, tariff rounds, which were primarily on clothing and footwear, and those are be beginning to trickle through to consumers. It'll take a while. On the horizon is the December 15th round, which will fall almost entirely on computers and cell phones. And so we have to see if uh, the president begins to absorb some of the microeconomics of that round, which will clearly hit uh, products that are designed and made in America and sold to Americans yeah. very, very hard. He's going to give a subsidy to Cupertino in the six Silicon Valley bedroom well, They're moving, they're moving some, some of the products back, aren't they, from what we've the, heard? The fancy new computer that they're going to sell to Hollywood. Mary, we are experiencing multi-dimensional <laughs> analysis of one dimension of the trade talks. And that one dimension is just the president's approach. The multi-dimensions are as follows. One being the slowdown in America. What does it mean for the president's approach? The other being the impeachment inquiry. What does it mean for the president's approach? We need to take a more multi-dimensional view of the whole thing, which is how did the Chinese respond to those things as well when they arrive in America this week, Mary? Did they get a little bit more leverage than maybe they had a month or so ago? Well, the Chinese have been reluctant for quite a while to do a deal with this president. Um, I think they see that the deals that this president has struck have been 
mainly one-sided. Even the Japan agreement, if you look at it, is primarily an agreement where Japan made concessions to the United States, concessions which I don't think help us in the long run. Uh, but nevertheless, um, uh, our concessions. And so the Chinese say, we don't want to go down that road. Let's see if this president is actually going to make a deal that will stand. Unfortunately, the president's been tweeting that the deal has to be 100% for America. It's hard to explain how that is a deal for someone. Usually a deal involves a little bit for both sides. So the Chinese are wary, I think, of making a deal right now. And um, they are looking ahead and seeing where will this impeachment go and what will we, what will we be dealing with in the months ahead. I don't think that that has affected Ambassador Lighthizer that much. I think he has a pretty clear game plan. Uh, but, of course, he reports to the president, and ultimately it will be the president's decision. Mary, Ambassador Lighthizer has been very clear. The president has certainly stuck to his guns over the last month or so, saying that he wants the big deal, he wants a broader deal. There was some mention a couple of weeks ago of having some kind of interim deal that leads to a broader deal, Mary. Do you think that could be a focus this week in talks? Yes, that's certainly how they've pitched the Japanese deal, as a mini deal that will lead to a bigger deal. Uh, so, yes, I, I think there is a possibility there. Uh, there's been a lot of talk of how both sides could really use an easing in this uh, trade war. Uh, clearly, the, the Chinese would benefit from importing some of our agricultural products. Our ag sector could clearly use the relief, as could President Trump. Uh, and as I just mentioned, the next round of tariffs is going to be one that will hit our tech sector very hard. Mary, I've kept this quiet because it was under embargo with the International Monetary Fund. They moments ago have announced that Kristalina Gureva, the new IMF managing director, will give her maiden speech tomorrow in Washington. I am thrilled to announce uh, that she and I will be in conversation after her important speech. Mary, lovely. The symbolism of this new managing director is extraordinary, is it? From Bulgaria, the first time from an Eastern European nation. It is quite extraordinary. And it also, you know, puts front and center again the role of Europe, both Western and Eastern Europe, in the global economy. It's something that has clearly taken a back seat with this focus on the U.S.-China trade war. Of course, this week we did see the U.S. announcing tariffs uh, in retaliation for um, the Airbus subsidies, something that this time was uh, okayed by the WTO, so different than other rounds. But nevertheless, it continues to put us at odds with our European allies. Mary, thank you so much. Mary, thank you. This has been wonderful. Well, as you know, uh, we've done a number of interviews over the year on Hangar 51, which is where in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, they buried the, they put the Ark of the Covenant, you know, at the end. And it's got some Roswell connection as well. (laughs) There's a Hangar 51 for Arisa Law. And our next guest right now is calling from the Hangar 51 (laughs) pension (laughs) accounting law. She's buried. It's 14 stories deep in Hangar Sutherland. Exactly. I'm not sure this is what she signed up for, but Brooke Sutherland, uh, Bloomberg Opinion columnist uh, covering all things uh, General Electric and industrial. So some big news out of General Electric today, Brooke. I think if I wake up this morning as a GE retiree, I'm not too happy. What's going on? 
So it actually does not affect retirees, but what they're doing is they're freezing pension benefits for uh, current employees, so people who started the company before 2011, because remember they already capped it and said anybody who started after 2011 was not going to be added to the pension plan. But if you were participating in the pension plan, you get to keep the benefits you accrued. You just don't get to accrue any more of them during your course of employment at GE. So instead, you'll be transitioned over to a 401k plan. And of course, that's not necessarily quite as attractive for those employees, which is why you do see the bonds of GE rallying on that as this sort of caps the liability and obligations for the company. So Brooke, is is this, you know, I know they've got this big uh, balance sheet. Is this all in an effort to try to save some cash so they can maybe work a little bit more on the balance sheet? It is. I mean, the pension, uh, the unfunded pension balance was a significant part of GE's overall debt load. And of course, they hadn't been putting the cash in that that they should have been and said they were doing ill-advised acquisitions like Alstom and Baker Hughes and spending billions and billions of dollars on stock buybacks that obviously have not done very much to lift the stock price. And so you have a huge cash need there. And what they're trying to do is put a little bit of a cap on that. That balance is subject to swings in interest rates with the plunge that we've yeah. seen over the past couple of months. <clears throat> That just creates a lot of risk there. So they're trying to contain that liability to the extent yeah. that they can. They're also pre-funding four to five billion of that to cover their minimum obligations in 2021, 2022. Uh, so that helps, but again, that, right. that is cash going out the door, and that's cash that you know arguably okay. they do need elsewhere. We, so. We've done a lot of this this morning, Brooke, but you've got a great industry perspective. This is not just about GE. This is everybody else resetting for a new terminal interest rate, resetting for a new actuarial assumption. Are right. they out front? Is everybody else going to catch up to GE on a 5 or 4% actuarial assumption? So you've already seen a lot of companies make these changes. Uh, Boeing is one that comes to mind. And so in some ways, GE is a little bit behind okay. the curve here. Okay. Um, I mean, they did make changes a couple of years ago, like I said, where they said anybody who joins after 2011 does not get to participate in the pension. So this has been a work in progress and a long time coming for the company. And I think, you know, one of the reasons why maybe they didn't do it sooner is that this is a workforce that has already had to deal with a lot. When you think about the job cuts over the last couple of years and just the morale uh, at the company has not been great with everything that it's been through. And so I think, you know, this is another hit for the employee base that GE was wanting yeah. to take. But of course, at the end of the day, it's unfortunately yeah. necessary just given the debt load that it has. What do you see for corporate earnings for your edge of the woods. I mean, what do you see for these companies coming up? For industrial companies, I think it's going to be a rough Like organic <laughs> organic revenue growth, low, 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 single digit kind of I thing? I think we're going to see a lot of guidance cuts. I think that companies yeah. were still sort of holding out hope in August hope, that maybe yeah. they could turn this around because so much of their third quarter depends on September. But the data that we've seen coming in for in the industrial sector has just really been disappointing. I think that the whatever boost they were hoping to get did not materialize. So I think, I mean, it depends on the company, but the shorter cycle industrial companies, I think you're going to see organic growth declines, you know, probably in the range of like maybe 1, 1%, 2%. Wow. So not okay. devastating, but, no, but still, still that's, that's yeah. notable. And then the longer cycle companies, I think that's going to be really interesting. Um, aerospace has been really sort of a stalwart for these manufacturing companies. And I think, you know, if you do start to see cracks there, that's going to cause a lot more panic yeah. than anything you see from the shorter cycle companies. Um, I don't see any reason to believe that's the case so far, but I know right. that's a really big watch item, especially as you start to see 
a slowdown in China's economy. China, of course, is responsible for a lot of the jet orders yeah. over the next couple of years. So any slackening in demand there can have really serious right. ramifications. Thanks for the update. Brooke Sutherland on uh, actuarial accounting, which she's getting up to speed on. She was getting her journalism degree. Right. I don't think she right. was. Uh, right. Do you think she minored in accounting? But. Paul Sweeney and Tom Keene, if you're on Global Wall Street, this is the conversation of the day. Michael Mayo with us. He covers the big banks. Any of you on Wall Street know who Mr. Mayo is. Uh, now with a shingle out at Wells Fargo uh, as well. Have you talked to your new CEO? You know, did he, was he shaking with trepidation when you walked in the room? <laughs> well, I, I certainly... Uh, you co- knew him before, right? I, I, you know, I've been covering the industry 30 years, so I know many executives, yeah. Tom, as, yeah. as you know. We'll leave it there. Uh, <laughs> congratulations on a new Wells Fargo. I want to talk about retail banking, HSBC, and the reporting is they're going to jettison their French division and they're going to figure out retail banking in Europe. What is the state of, re- you know, branches, retail banking in America? Is that it? What's the pulse of that right now? Well, I'm going to pull the lens out like I do with you a lot. This is the worst revenue decade for banks in 80 years, eight zero years. So revenues, whether it's retail banking or branch banking, it's just not the same as it used to be. You have period of low interest rates, you have a lot more digital banking, and the top line at banks just is not that great. And so, and I'm, I'm wearing, a, I have the techie look today, Tom. You, you do, you I do. comment on that. Our I audience have, can see it. I have, a, <laughs> I have a, my hoodie on, but that reflects. The difference is you have the body to wear it, and I don't. <laughs> so, look, we have a new 200-page report out talking about this is the decade of banking and tech. And you're seeing less branches and more digital banking. You're, you'll see more uh, AI and big data and cloud and, and electronic payments. And that is the overall relationship. Paul's shaking his head. Yeah, I have a, as a former Wall Streeter spending 20 years, I have a big problem with your report because as I read it, I just think about headcount. And headcount's going to go down. The more technology that comes on to banking and financial services, the less the headcount. So is this all in an effort to try to drive returns for these banks that are facing a lower revenue environment? Necessity is the mother of invention. And if you have a weak top line, you need to control uh, expenses to have a good bottom line. And the way you do that is you enable technology uh, to be more efficient. Is that linked to reduced headcount? you know what? <laughs> Spent six months on this report, used nine of the senior tech analysts at Wells Fargo Securities in the research group. Spent all this time and said, how much are you going to save in technology? Wrong question. Half of bank expenses are employee costs. So we forecast a reduction in 200,000 jobs in Wall Street and the U.S. banking industry over the next decade. And that's the lever. If nothing else is working, so look out, my peers. It's not getting easier. Oh, so you're real popular in, around the Wells Fargo, you know, talking about 200,000 jobs going off the street. Give us a sense of kind of where returns are for the banks that you cover now versus kind of pre-crisis. Will we ever get back to pre-crisis returns? Well, yes and no. Um, last year, most recently, you've had the best uh, returns since before the financial crisis. Okay. But as you point out, before the financial crisis, returns were a lot higher. What's interesting, we think in two years from now, if you adjust the returns for the higher levels of capital, or put differently, for the much lower level of leverage, then you could be at an all-time high in three, four, or five years, 
once again, due to improving efficiency that's enabled by technology. So I'd say on a risk-adjusted basis, you could be at an all-time high for returns, and that makes returns a lot more sustainable. All right, so there's a very good Wells Fargo branch right on the corner here of Bloomberg. They're very nice people, and they take care of us. Um, give us a sense of number of branches around in the U.S. today, and where do you think it might be five or ten years from now? I mean, like we were at 100,000 branches a few years ago, down to 90,000 branches. We think that can be cut in half over the next 10 to 15 years. So yeah. you're seeing digital banking replace okay. branches. Look at Bank of America. Bank of America has a level of online deposits gathered through mobile banking equal to the seventh largest branch network, equal to 1,500 right. bank branches. Wow. And that was just started this decade. So that's right. the yep. wave of the future. What, give us the, this is really important then, Mike. If you're gonna take 100,000 down to 90,000, you say it'll cut in half, whatever the math is, out X number of years. What part of the revenue and or down the income statement profit stream is that diminution of branches? Is, is that like the core of profits? I would guess not. The, 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 the lessening of retail branches isn't going to have that much effect on the income statement, is it? It's the combination of all the technology initiatives. Exactly. Okay, so it's not that alone. So, you know, we summarize it as AI, big data, cloud, digital banking, electronic payments, faster processing. Right. and. Importantly, the governance, the people overseeing the process. So technology needs to go from the chief information officer to the CEO. You need more technologists closer to the CEO at these banks. So you change the culture. Look at Goldman Sachs, right? They're changing how they dress. It's not just you know me with my hoodie today well, for you, Tom. It's, we, it's, a, it's a cultural of, change. You know, we're going to continue on the next block, but let's go there right now. Wither Goldman Sachs right now. I mean, aren't they the lagging of lagging you know, major banks right now? Well, look, um, you had model lines last century, right? You mm -hmm. had Countrywide and Mortgages. That didn't turn out so well. You had Bear Stearns and Investment Banking. That didn't turn out so well. You had a company called MBNA and Credit Cards. That didn't turn out so well. And now you have the e-brokers. You know, look, the idea of one product, one channel is so, la Goldman is, Sachs is is so last century. Yeah, 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 so yeah, Goldman, yeah. you know, it's gotten the message now. I would say later than they should have. And I think I was on your show talking about this at the first part of this decade. So now you have David Solomon saying, hey, let's diversify a little bit more into a range of areas, smaller you know, corporations to do investment banking, consumers, mass market, all these other areas. So better late than never to a degree, I think the jury is out on the degree that they will succeed. So Mike, I'm just gonna exhibit six of this monster report these technology bud budgets are in the billions. How about if I'm a smaller, mid-sized bank? I can't keep up, can I? You know, uh, what fascinates me is that the banking industry spends more in technology than any other industry, $150 right. billion dollars a year. So one thing you know, that we say is banks better get their money's worth, otherwise, you know, spend less on that technology or you have a problem with the business model or management. But the question well, that comes up, how do the mid-sized banks compete? Yep. And therefore, you probably have a lot more. Do you see any evidence that they can? Look, there's always exceptions, and but this is really happening over the last, you know, three or four years. Remember, the first part of this decade, I was saying break up the big banks, right? Based on performance measures, right, governance, right. everything else. The last, you know, three to five years, you're seeing the large bank performance measures get much better. So there are some exceptions. You know, performance is the okay. best way for success. Well, but but look, if you aren't 
among the largest banks, you right. have to think about consolidation at some point. Uh, Mike Mayo with a stagecoach holding out on Lexington Avenue right now with Wells Fargo. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 